Don't talk to me about being a good parent at some lecture seminar on parenting if you're not loving your kids at home. Don't talk to me about righteousness and justice, Christians, unless you're living in righteousness and justice yourself. In other words, we need to look and think more about being a transformed nation before we go out to transform the nation. So it all begins in our churches. And I want to know if you're a Christian and you're listening, I, before, I, before I talk to you about how you're going to vote, I want to know, are you living a just and righteous life with other members of your church? Welcome to Grace and 30 on WERALP Arlington 96.7 FM and streaming at WERA.FM. This is Ed Malik, and I'll be your host for the program tonight. We are a little over two months away from the presidential election, and our country seems to have lost its mind. The unity displayed in the early stages of the pandemic has given way to an absurd level of tribalism and irrational behavior. People with automatic weapons are protesting the tyranny of wearing a face mask. New Karen videos seem to surface every day. Social unrest seems ever-present. And some of our leaders are even promoting a culture of racism, fear, and violence in the society they were sworn to protect and serve. What's a follower of Christ to do? We'll be discussing that tonight with Jonathan Lehman, the editorial director at Nine Marks, an organization that equips church leaders with resources for building healthy churches, and the author of How the Nations Rage, Rethinking Faith and Politics for a Divided Age. Jonathan, welcome back to Grace and 30. Ed, thank you. I'm grateful to be here. So how can Christians be the light we're called to be in the midst of so much chaos in our society? Yeah, first and foremost, we have to be the people who put their trust in the Lord and then know that the Lord is King of kings and Lord of lords. Uh, Christian politics begins with the, the claim that Jesus is King. All authority in heaven and on earth belong to him. And so our fundamental task is to represent him. We're not to go into the public square determined to dominate it, thinking we're going to bring heaven to earth now or fix everything just so, we are to represent King Jesus in our words, the light of our words, and the saltiness of our lives. And in the process, we will do good and seek justice, to be sure, because we're following a king who's good and just. But because we know that he is king and none of the parties or movements or governments of this world finally are, that should mark us off as different. And what does that look like? In a very practical sense, you know, what does that look like? Because everybody thinks they're right on every side. They think they've got the truth and the other side is evil or is missing some huge issue that they're passionate about. On a practical basis, I always think about the scripture that says Christ, you know, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us full of grace and truth. How do you walk those two things out simultaneously? Yeah. Well, there'd be several things I'd want to say here. Let me say just kind of the subject headings, and then if you want to dig deeper on any of them, we can go there. Number one, what does it look like? Number one, it means that we as Christians actually begin our politics in, listen to this, our local churches. We have to be before we do. Don't talk to me about being a good parent at some lecture seminar on parenting if you're not loving your kids at home. Don't talk to me about righteousness and justice, Christians, unless you're living in righteousness and justice yourself. In other words, we need to look and think more about 
being a transformed nation before we go out to transform the nations. So it all begins in our churches. And I want to know if you're a Christian, you're listening. I would, before I before I talk to you about how you're going to vote, I want to know, are you living a just and righteous life with other members of your church? Because it's there, I think you're going to learn how to appreciate what you are. You're going to learn what it means to love your enemy. You're going to learn what justice and righteousness are. So that's the first thing. The second thing is, I think when we then turn to step into the public square, we need to think biblically, right? And specifically, that means what does the Bible authorize governments to do? Does it authorize us to use the sword? If so, how? And for what purposes? To insist that people become Christians? I don't think so. Uh, to prosecute this crime or that crime? Well, that's the conversation we need to have. What does the Bible authorize government to do? And that's going to give us a sense of what specific issues we should be engaging. And then third, I also want to say, promote Christian liberty. And I'm saying that, saying that specifically for our relationships with other Christians. Ed, you and I mo- both might decide that you know, immigration policy needs to be considered. We both might think healthcare is something that needs to be addressed. We both might bring biblical principles to bear on immigration or healthcare, but you and I might disagree about the best way to go about that is. And I think there needs to be freedom between Christians for that. Here's why that's critical. It's, it's critical for a number of reasons. Here's one reason. As you and I, Ed, suppose we come to a different position on immigration, healthcare, reparations, any number of things. If we recognize there's Christian freedom in a number of these political issues, not all, but a num- most of them, uh, that's going to cause you and me as fellow Christians to interact and love one another differently than we see in the world. You began the program by talking about the tribalism and the rancor and the toxicity and the just the, the, the rage uh, that characterizes so much of the public square. Well, it should be different among Christians. If we're fighting and bickering and devouring one another, we're going to look just like the world, right? I guess the fourth thing I want to say, there's a lot of things I could say. The fourth thing I want to say is remembering that you're representing King Jesus as you go. And sometimes that that means we're going to say, look, let me be very clear. I believe this as a Christian. Other issues— you know, I, I'm not going to pretend like I know Jesus' exact mind on immigration or healthcare, and uh, I, I want to say, hey, I'm here as a Christian, but I want to work together with others, and uh, I trust others might have wisdom that I don't have. So I'm always there representing King Jesus, but that's going to impact how I speak depending on the kind of issue it is. A lot more I could say with any of these, but that, that's a start. Yeah, well, you chose immigration. That's a hot issue. Um, But there's some hotter ones, it seems to me, like abortion, gay marriage, things like that. There are certain believers out there that through their behavior seem to elevate these above anything else. If you are if you are for abortion, for example, then then absolutely no vote at all for that particular candidate. And we're going to vote for someone else. And that someone else could be a train wreck in many respects, you know, very ungodly. Um, unrepentant person, and yet we align in a very worldly way behind that person. This is a huge struggle right now because people, you know, we're reading from the same Bibles and all, but different people have a different perspective on this. You know that I've told you in the past that I, you know, I believe as as a church, as the body of Christ, we should be praying for a Christ-like, Josiah-like leader. That if we're, you know, if we're acting like and we're saying to other people we're going to be holding our nose and when we go to the ballot and and casting our vote. 
why don't as a church we simply come together? And I'm not saying pick a person or anything like that. Don't I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying truly go to God the Father, the infinite God, and say, This is unacceptable. We repent. We're asking you to intercede and give us something, give us something better. I'm not wishing any harm on anyone or anything like that. I'm just simply saying, why don't we act like that? Do you think that's something that we should be doing? Well, I think insofar as we love our neighbors ourselves and we seek to do justice, yes, we should always be praying for, asking for, seeking to raise up leaders who who fear God and uh, seek to do justice. So I think that should be a continual aspiration of the Christian's heart. Um, uh, now, you and I both know the Lord has not promised that this side of Christ's return, he's going to give us that. Uh our, our greatest hopes can't finally be in the next election. So we have this balance to strike, Ed, between on the one hand, seeking to love your neighbor, seeking to do justice, doing all you can as a citizen of the United States or whatever country you're, 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 you're in to, to seek what is good, right? Think Jeremiah 29. And on the other hand, uh, putting our, our ultimate hopes in heaven Knowing that sometimes the Lord intends for us to go through difficult days, right? It's it's like it's like almost anything else you you do in life. Let's suppose you're struck with cancer. Should you pray for healing? Yes. Should you finally put your hope in being healed? Well, no, because it's not finally this body that you're trying to hold on to. You're raising your children. You should you work for their obedience and should you work for them to love the Lord? Absolutely. Should you assume that you can control that or, or know that the Lord has promised perfectly obedience or even Christian children? Well, I'm kind of laughing because if you have kids, you know it's, it's no guarantee. And uh, I think our engagement in politics is going to be the same as those other illustrations. On the one hand, pray for, fight for, work for, yes. On the other hand, put your hope in heaven, saint. That is where we are promised perfect justice and vindication and righteousness. So I've read a couple of scriptures recently. I was, I've actually finished reading through the Bible, and I went to the New Testament, and then I went Old Testament and was in a chronological Bible. And I came across a couple of scriptures, one in, both in Ezekiel. And one was, again and again, you remind me of your sin and your guilt. You don't even try to hide it. And everything you do, your sins are obvious for all to see. That's some of our leaders. And it's kind of jolting, and, and I'm curious. What passage is that? That's Ezekiel 21.4. Okay. And there's another one that's 22.27, which is your leaders are like wolves who tear apart their victims. They actually destroy people's lives for money. I can't get those two verses out of my mind these days. And I actually wrote a blog, blog post recently on, you know, should Christians be standing up to their leader. So if you have a leader who has certain positions you agree with, fantastic, you can say that. But but if they're acting just incredibly in an unchristlike way in other areas, do we have a responsibility to speak out regarding that? And I'm curious what your thoughts are with that. Well, I suppose it depends on your job and your station and your stewardship, right? Uh, if, if I'm talking to a pastor, one answer. If I'm talking to an accountant or a public school teacher or a you know, high school student may be a different answer. I'm talking to a lawyer or a writer. Uh, now, Ed, you and I both uh, probably feel some responsibility to address matters in the public square, or at least among churches. Insofar as you you have the you have the platform of, of a radio program, I, I have a, a web page and and books I do. So, so yeah, you and I are probably going to feel certain 
callings and requirements on us that I don't, I don't want to necessarily put on every Christian. To answer your question on the broadest level, yes, I mean, I, I think there is a place for people, to, for Christians in certain times and places to stand up and speak prophetically. Uh, a friend of mine was a, or is a pastor in um, an Afri- a church in Africa, and one Sunday, it just so happened that the prime minister walked through the doors and sat down in, in, in the audience for, for this friend's and this friend's congregation. And uh, the passage of scripture that he was preaching on that day just so happened to pertain, <laughs> I say just so happened, I trust in God's province and the Holy Spirit, um, just so happened by God's providence and the Holy Spirit to to come near to some of the things that this this president of this African nation was um, doing unjustly. And this pastor rightly and wisely, I believe, uh, confronted it and addressed it and called sin, sin. Now, most of us aren't going to have that kind of opportunity, right? When the president of the country shows up one Sunday and you just happen to be preaching. Uh, Yeah, but bottom line, yes, one of the church's functions is to say, oh, nations of the earth, this is righteousness, this is wickedness. That is one of our jobs as a church, whether we do that as individual members or we do that as the pastor, whatever. Um, And if we are unwilling to say this is righteousness and this is wickedness, then we are no longer the salt and light we're called to be. We might as be thrown out and trampled on by men. We are salt that's lost its saltiness. So I enjoyed getting your posts on Twitter. Sometimes you you post some really interesting quotes from folks. You posted something on the 16th of August. It said, Christians must resist the messianic claims of political figures and state power. Yeah. I'm not asserting that Christians refrain from political action, but by all means, give your political party your vote. Just don't give them your heart. When I read that, I thought, you know, it seems like that that's going on in a big way these days, at least in terms of those Christians who are getting the most media attention and press. Do you think this is a, a major problem these days with, with Christians just really giving their heart more to the the worldly political process than giving it first to Christ? Well, biblically, let me just say, I think this is going to be a reoccurring problem. I think throughout Scripture, uh, you have good governments and you have bad governments. You have uh, Pharaoh at the time of, of Jonah, who seeks to—Jonah, uh, uh, Joseph, who seeks to protect God's people. Then you have Pharaoh at the time of Moses, who seeks to devour God's people. And you get reoccurring cycles of that through biblical history, culminating in the beast and Revelation, who, who seeks to devour God's people. And and uh, I don't think that's something that's just reserved for the end. As I said, I think that's an ongoing pattern. And I think in American history, there's long been a tendency to put our trust in America. You you hear it in the rhetoric. You hear it in John Winthrop in the Massachusetts Bay Colony, America, or the, this, this this people. He says we're a city on the hill. Kennedy picks that up. Reagan picks that up. Ben Carson was using that phrase again recently. Well, well, who's the city on the hill, friends? It's the church, says Jesus. But notice what's going on there is there's this, this temptation to regard our, our greatest hopes in this country. And when we do that, oh man, we're, we're on, we're on thin ice there. We're on, uh, we're, we're on the path to idolatry. So, do I love America? Yes, I'm a patriot in, you know, in one sense. I mean, I grew up 
loving baseball and loving historical movies about America. My my heart gets kind of choked up, honestly, in certain things. I love America. On the other hand, I can't make it an idol. My hope has to be in Christ and his kingdom. And um, the thing is, you just have to assume that if you're a non-Christian political leader on the right and the left, what what are you going to try to do? You're going to try to get the support of everybody. You're going to try to draw in their hearts and affections. You're going to use all kinds of symbolism and pageantry to draw the affections and commitments of, of the people to get what you think is the best thing to do. That is to say, political leaders, unless they're restrained by you know, the Spirit of God in one way or another, they will draw and seek worship. That is what fallen government does, and we need to be constantly aware of that. So I know that you had recently commented on the gatherings. You know, I know John MacArthur brought his Grace Community Church back together, you know, to to meet, and there's no distancing or masks or whatever, and, and there's a wide variation between what churches are doing around the country. What's your current thinking? I know your church, I think your church is meeting again, correct? Yeah, that's right. Uh-huh. We're and, meeting and in the field outside. Okay, so you're doing your you're meeting and you're doing outdoor meetings. Correct. What did you do when you came up with that approach? What was your, your decision-making process? The senior pastor gave us a very detailed outline of what the laws were in our area and in our county, and we wanted to do what we could to obey those. Um, and then we figured out, okay, well, we could, we could meet outside with all of our members as opposed to inside with a certain percentage of members. And since we're a small enough congregation— uh, about 120 people, and, and we knew we could accommodate everybody who was interested in attending in a, in a certain field next to another church building. Uh, we made arrangements to do that. Then, of course, and along the way, we informed our members of what the plans were. We try to make it clear that if you know you're high risk or for some set of reasons you're uncomfortable, we understand. Let us know, and so forth, because we wanted to be able to have conversations with people. Nonetheless, yeah, we, we announced and then eventually we we resumed. And this is probably back in June or July. Honestly, I don't remember at this point. You're down in DC, correct? Yeah. We're we're on the I'm on I'm in the Maryland suburbs. So just outside on on the Maryland side side of things. Obeying the authorities in this case because you know you came you came up with a solution that seemed to work, correct? Yeah. Well listen, I think you know, there's been some debate about whether or not Caesar has the authority, as you said, to forbid churches from gathering. You know, in in one sense, ultimately, no. Uh, it's the command of Christ that we gather. Do not forsake the assembling of yourselves, says the author of Hebrew. Nonetheless, I think most of us recognize that for temporary seasons, that Caesar's authority does extend into elements pertaining to our gatherings. The way the magisterial reformers sometimes referred to the, they made a distinction between in sacra or circa sacra, in sacra, in sacred things, circa, around, uh, around sacred things. So do, does, does Caesar have authority in sacred things, in whether we worship or what we worship? Certainly not. Do they, does Caesar have authority around sacred things, around our gatherings? The fact that we're physical bodies coming together, uh, you know, maintaining fired codes, zoning restrictions, um, elements of public order and safety. 
yes, I think Caesar does have authority in those kinds of things. And that's why most churches I know obey fire regulations and safety codes. You know, you go back to World War II, and at one point, certain cities, coastal cities in New York and San Francisco and so forth, said to churches, hey, we need you guys to abide by our blackouts in the evening. So any evening services, could you please not turn on your lights? And churches were happy to comply with that because they were afraid of enemy planes flying over. And, you know, so in that case, they submitted rightly, I think, to the government and saying, no, we won't meet in the evenings. Does that mean they're have, does that mean Caesar, they're suddenly granting Caesar authority over the church, over sacred things? Well, no, but I would say they're granting it around sacred things. And in the same way, uh, we need to be paying attention to, to, okay, is, is Caesar or is the government acting Fairly? Are they treating us differently? Are they singing, singling us out unfairly? Well, that, that, that's a different conversation. Or are they applying certain restrictions to us that they're sort of applying equally and fairly to all similarly situated like organizations? Uh, is, are there clear criteria that they're applying? Um, is there a real risk that, that we perceive and, 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 and so forth? Or is this kind of just going on indefinitely? Are they unfairly applying certain things to us that they're not applying to casinos or movie theaters or other things like that. Um, well, then that might raise some questions. Uh, so bottom line, I think churches and pastors need to strike a balance between, on the one hand, acknowledging the real authority of Caesar given to him by Christ, together with uh, a recognition that governments can and do overstep. They can and do become unjust. And when that's the case, we obey God rather than man. And as Paul and Peter and John say in Acts chapter 4. So there's not going to be a one-size-fits-all answer for all churches in all situations in this present moment. And, but I think each church, each congregation, each set of elders is going to have to ask these kinds of questions as they make decisions. I want to just you, you to give us some basic definitions. I'd like to start with, you know, what is grace? It's unmerited favor, Right. It's, it's, it's receiving the, the favor and goodness and blessing of the Lord or whomever that we don't deserve. We haven't merited it. If we're talking about God and if we're talking about the promises that he, he offers us through Christ in Scripture, uh, that favor involves a removal of our sin, uh, a removal of punishment, the forgiveness of sin, a reconciliation with him a declaration of being righteous before his throne. It, it involves being united to him forever in eternity and knowing his goodness and blessing the one who made us and for whom we were created. It means it involves being united to his people, becoming a new people, a new citizenry, sons and daughters of the divine king and brothers and sisters with one another. Uh, it, begin, it means the beginning of an abundant life now that is going to stretch on for eternity in the new heavens and the new earth. So that grace, oh gosh, it, 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 it's, it's wonderful what we have in Christ now, and that is only pointing us towards and preparing us for even greater wonders to come. Yeah, in the last program, I, I know we specifically talked about the gospel and the good news. And, and yeah. to me, you know, when I talk to people these days, it's, that's the good news of a real king, a truly, fully just, righteous, loving, kind, you know, flourishing kingdom that's coming with a, with a righteous leader. None of the worldly stuff that's going on, neither candidate Biden or Trump is 
is perfect. They have many, many flaws, but something is a kingdom is coming that's truly perfect for once and has a leader that is truly perfect. That's in, that is truly incredibly good news. And well, it really is. But think, but let's think about the nature of that king. Think about Mark chapter ten, uh, where where Jesus says to his disciples, you know, they're comparing who's who's going to be the greatest, and 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 Jesus says. Uh, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you, for whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. Now listen to this. For even the Son of Man, i.e. Jesus himself, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. In other words, how would Jesus establish his kingship? He would establish it by putting his head forward for a crown of thorns and offering his shoulders for this this purple, you know, scarlet scarlet royal cloak, albeit shoulders that had just been beaten. And and, and he he invited his enemies to lift him up in a throne, right? What kind of throne? A cross. And there our King Jesus defeated the greatest enemies humanity's ever known, sin and death. And then, of course, he rose again from the grave, defeating the penalty of sin, which is death. And uh, so, yeah, we have a king, but he's a different kind of king than the, the Gentiles who would lord it over us. He is a king who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Yeah, a recent a pastor that I used to pre- previously uh, listen to over many years, I was out at Reston Bible, and Mike Mentor used to talk about the kingdom principles. If you want to be first, you got to be last. You want to leave, you lead, you have to serve. You want to get, you have to give. These are sort of the upside-down principles in, in this, this very different kingdom that's coming again. So we've only got about another minute. Is there something you'd like to share with listeners, something you'd like to challenge them, or something you'd like to share with them before we, we cut off? I'd go back to what I was talking about towards the beginning of this podcast as we enter this political season. I'd encourage brothers and sisters in Christ to remember two things. Number one, Christian freedom. That's what I mentioned before. We're going we're gonna to disagree on what some of the best solutions are. We're going to have some different convictions. Uh, now, hopefully, all of us are seeking to obey and apply Scripture. We'll, that that's not to be disagreed on. Insofar as we can, we we need to seek to up, uphold and obey Scripture. But fellow brothers and sisters in Christ are going to have slightly different views about how to do some of that. And unless we give each other the freedom to do so, we're going to tear each other apart in a way that is not becoming of the people of God. That's the first thing. The second thing, people on both sides, the right and the left, are feeling a threat from the other side. You might even say an existential threat, a threat against their own existence. And just to remind people from Psalm 2 that the Lord holds the nations raging against them, uh, beholds them, and he laughs. He holds the kings and their uh, their leaders in derision, verse 4 says from Psalm 2. So when you're tempted to feel the threat, the existential threat, remember the eternal threat of the Lord God Almighty and that we are his people. And uh, there is a greater one to fear than anything that this world might threaten us with. Jonathan, thank you so much for joining me again. If listeners would like to find out more about Jonathan's work, you can check him out on Twitter at Jonathan Lehman, L-E-E-M-A-N. 
You can also visit uh, the ninemarks.org website, and that's the number nine followed by marks.org. This is Ed and Jonathan signing off from Grayson 30 on WERALP Arlington 96.7 FM. Have a great night and be sure to tune into Grace.